bunch of young people, gave us an office, and that that's when I met Manson, when I was at Universal. <laughs> that's when I met Manson. Manson. Do tell! <laughs> so, and we're not I, talking about Marilyn Manson, no, we're, not. we're not talking about Cheryl. Yeah. We know yeah. that was my, my only foray into record producing, was I produced that record with Charlie. Wow. <laughs> the char and that, now let me ask you something, when you, when you go, <laughs> what are the pre-production meetings like for a Charles Manson <laughs> record? And tell me more of your production style. So this is a good, this is a good, I turned, I, the guy, the engineer turned on the, uh, turned on the machine and we sat there. <laughs> That's called supervision, they used to call it supervision. Supervision. Yeah. Well it was a demo. Mm. They gave me the money to make the demo. I had no idea what we were doing. Wow. We had an engineer. Who were they? Universal. Well, this is a good story. Wow, okay, so I, I'm not so, going to interrupt. Go and, ahead. So at that time, I was at Universal, and I had this good friend named Phil Kaufman, who was just a major character. He was like your father in many ways, a okay. very funny guy. Phil got arrested for bringing marijuana from Tijuana here. Nice. He got caught, and he got sentenced to, I don't know how long, six months. Terminal Island, which is right here in oh, I don't San know. Pedro. Oh, I can only imagine. There's a what bridge that's like. that goes to yeah. Terminal Island. I know. Right? Okay. San Pedro. That's yeah. all there is is the prison there. So Phil was in Terminal Island, and his cellmate was a guy named Charlie Manson. And at that at that time, I, Phil and I were very good close at the time. Mm -hmm. And I used to send him letters. I'd mail him letters and dip them in acid. So he would, he would take the, the letters and they'd cut them up and they, he'd give them to his friends in jail. Yeah. They'd, they'd take acid in prison. So he gave Charlie some acid. Charlie wanted to know who he got it from. Oh, yeah. He said, me. Yeah. And he told him, when you get out. Oh, Charlie wanted to be a, a musician. He, is, he aspired to be a musician. He asked Phil, did he know anybody? Phil said, yes. He knew me. I wasn't really not in the music business, but he thought I could maybe yeah. give him some introduction. At that moment in time, Universal Studios had just started their own record company. Yeah. Uni Records. Yeah. Under I've, Russ Reagan. Yes. I've totally. Yeah. So Phil gets out, I mean, uh, Charlie gets out of prison. He calls me. He asks if he can come see me. I say yes. We don't set anything up, but. One day, not there, not much later, mm -hmm. I get a call from the security guard at the at Universal, the front gate, saying there's this guy here to see you named Charlie Manson. So, Charlie, I tell tell him where my office is. Yeah. Up drives this school bus that Charlie had incorporated somehow, with about five girls. They come into my office. They're all loaded. Charlie's got a guitar. He starts singing, and these girls are dancing around. They start getting undressed in my office. Just having a great old time. They're high as a kite. I call Russ Reagan, who had just started the label. I said, mm -hmm. there's a guy here. Not sure if he's good or not, but would you take a meeting with him? He said, come on up. So we parade this Charlie and his merry band of gypsies yeah. up to Russ Reagan's office. He's yeah. just setting up this office. There's like boxes in the thing. <laughs> He hasn't even moved in yet completely. Right. Charlie walks in, and he's this is like full hippie regalia, right. these girls and Charlie. Charlie proceeds to sit uh, Lotus-style on Russ Reagan's desk, t 
totally intimidated him. He sat right on the desk, mm. and, and, and Russ is sitting in his, in his desk chair, and he starts to play. And the girls start dancing around the thing, and Russ is looking at me like, what the fuck is this? Mm. Anyway, he finishes the thing. Russ c takes me outside. He said, I'll give you a few hundred bucks to go to the studio and make a demo. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck this is. So yeah. we go to Gold Star Recording. Oh, it's real joint. Yeah, yeah. real joint. Yeah. Hired a, an engineer. Yeah. We, uh, they take acid. They all take acid. Okay. Go in the studio. They all take off their clothes, the girls. Okay. They're dancing around. It's like dark in there with some red lights. And I'm the producer. <laughs> I yeah. tell the guy to turn it on and turn it off. Yeah. Charlie's improvising the whole time. He's just oh. making shit up. Okay. The one song that I do remember was a song about eating out of garbage dump. It was like the, uh, it was the single. <laughs> yeah, that was the called single. Oh, Garbage Dump. Oh, my. It was a love song to eating out of a garbage dump. And wow. halfway through the thing, <laughs> this, was, this was really, this is really what, what I remember most. Russ Reagan walks in to see how his money is being spent. And now Charlie's in full-blown acid. He's yeah. uh, uh, peaking. Totally peaked. The girls are literally nude, dancing around Charlie. He's singing these fucking weird songs. Yeah. And Russ is looking at me like, what the fuck is this? And he grabs the microphone and he starts trying to control the session. He's saying yeah. things like, sing the blues, Charlie. Sing the blues, baby. I know you got it in you. Oh He's saying God. shit like this. He's trying to A&R it. He's trying to A&R a, mass, a future like, mass murderer. Charlie. Yeah. So yeah. The, when, when all the shit came down, they, first of all, the thing was terrible. Yeah. They reject it. Sure. Um, when the shit comes down with Charlie, and Russ Reagan recognizes that, yeah, that it's who the same, this is, yeah. same guy, he calls me immediately. Where are those tapes? I said, I have no idea where those tapes are. I said, you got to get rid of those tapes, because he's on the tapes now, telling Charlie to sing the blues. Oh. He's like afraid he's going to be implicated in some way, tied into this thing. Yeah, like you're, you're giving him the message, you know, like yeah, somehow, right. like it was Russ you're Reagan. <laughs> he was speaking to me through, yeah. So Russ Reagan to this day still thinks that I have the tapes and that uh, I no, that's ridiculous. Still thinks really? that I have the tapes and that that could cause harm if I wanted to, to by linking him to the Charlie Manson tapes. Wow. So those tapes disappeared. I had no idea what happened. I'm sure after, one of them took them. Like you know, well, they threw it away at the studio somehow. But yeah. it ended up getting somebody found them and put it together as an album when when Charlie yeah. got arrested and it came out. Yeah, no, I... I they took the... Charlie had his picture on the cover of Life magazine. Yeah. And the, 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 art, the art director, if you will, that made yeah. the album sure. took that, the Life logo and just cut out the letter F and it just said lie. And, uh, and it had this wild-eyed Charlie Manson. Yeah. And that was the album cover. And wow. I had no idea that was coming out until I saw it. Sure. And what what label put it out? I mean, it was wasn't it, a label. Oh, it was just like somebody a just yeah, it was like a bootleg thing. Pressed but up they vinyl. Unfortunately, credited me in the thing. They were like because your name's probably on the tapes I'm that they the you know they lifted off of like half inch tapes. So and I they just, my name was on the tapes. Wow. So I mean, obviously, we all know what happened to Mr. Manson. What happens when he starts doing what? his thing? What did you do? Because you're now that was that was a. Uh, a, uh, a big event in my life. I was married to this girl named Chelsea Brown, who was on Laughing. She was the uh, oh yeah. In fact, I just posted a picture of her on Facebook. Yeah. Um, she was the the only black girl on Laughing. Yeah. Laughin', was yeah. my first wife. Yeah. When Charlie was doing this shit with me, he came over to my house a couple times. Oh boy. Saw me and my wife. When 
the ship came down, the Manson ship came down, one of the things that, that was described at, uh, about Charlie was that he had this real racial, he, had, he believed that Armageddon was coming. And that, oh, yeah. and that the Beatles, um, Helter Skelter, that's sure. where Helter Skelter came from, and that it was going to end up as a race war. Right. And he had a deep-seated hatred of blacks from living in prisons and all that. Mm. So when Charlie got, when they did the, de the mm. deed, yeah. I was in New York, and I came back to New York and drove home to my wife. Yeah. And I, I got home, started unpacking, I was knocked at the door, and it was the FBI sure. to talk to me. And yeah. they said they had found a, they had just arrested Charlie Manson, wow. who I was totally freaked out about anyway. I mean, I knew that they had arrested yeah. him as the guy. Yeah. They said, we have a list of people that he's intended to kill, and your name is on the list. <laughs> to make the top <laughs> 20. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So I, I mean, it's I, not funny, but it wasn't you know, funny at the time. Not a, now a little. Laugh. But I, I, left, I, I left the country. I went to Europe. And I just hid out for like three months because <laughs> I knew there were there were other people in the Manson clan that were not arrested. Right. So who knows how and, crazy they and were? He had a lot of influence over these people. So who knew whether he, they were going to carry out his will? Wow. Not. But my wife and I were on the list of people he was going to kill. Wow. Which totally freaked me out. Yeah, I can't. You know, the, the, <laughs> the first thought that would come to my mind is, where on the equator can yes. I go? Like, where, where, she, where? Could... Feet don't fail you now. <laughs> wow. So no. then, yeah, uh, you, 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 it's a couple months, I would imagine, before the my children heard this story. They look at me like, oh, they, what? oh, I mean, they're. Because you could, I mean, I, I'm you try to put together some kind of legacy for your children. You know that they could be. My kids. Yeah, I mean, oh, my I'm, dad produced Charlie Manson. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice one. Well, and the thing is, your kids are younger. Like you're not. Your kids aren't my generation. Your kids are. No, one I mean, yeah, they're they're like a sub generation. They didn't full, know about Charlie Manson. Not they, at all. They, 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 there's a book out that that this story is contained in oh. um, called Helter Skelter. It's the official. Oh yeah, no, I, I've read it. That I whole mean. story is uh, in there. My kids read it. I, I mean, yeah, you know, it's like, I guess as a parent, you know. It's a book a, you don't want to be in. It's yeah. Charlie Manson bio. It's yeah, but that, but that can bring us to something that they might want to be part of, which is only a couple years later, you're working on, you're producing Car Wash, man. And yeah, that well, was like such a Thankfully, it'll cultural... distract them off of the, <laughs> off of the Manson story. And I, I remember that, honestly, is... I remember meeting and knowing who you were as a, like, a very little kid... A little after that, probably before Fish and Save Pittsburgh, because I went so nuts. Mid so mid seventies, but I remember car wash. I mean, I saw car wash. I mean, you know, like that was that era. Like my parents would be like, "What well, doesn't matter? Just bring the kids. You go to a movie." I saw Midnight Express when I was eight. You know, or wow. nine. You know, wrong stuff, but but okay. yeah, but so, right stuff for the son of your father. I will tell you one thing: <laughs> incredible stuff. And I actually talked about this in another episode of the show. That movie, my mother took me to it in our little sort of suburb outside of Philly. Midnight Express? My mom took me. My old man was Did she in... know what it was? Yeah. And I remember the, 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 the woman at the ticket counter, you know, behind the glass said, are, are you sure you want to bring? She said, yeah. I know what I'm bringing him to. Like, yeah, I'm sure. And she was sweet and sort of naive so what was about thinking? it. My thinking was I'm never, and it actually worked. I never to this day have done a drug beyond like Reefer. I never tried anything. It freaked me out so much as a kid. 
freaked that, you out doing it or transporting it? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Well, no, I guess the ramifications of being connected to it, I, I thought, well, if you do it, well, then you're around people that do this shit. And I listen, you know, look what I grew up so never around. Done never, do, never done a thing. And I'm sure, like, people are like, you've got to be full of shit. Like, you know, really? I mean, I could see where it would scare you about traveling with it. Uh, yeah, well, no, traveling with it, like, turkey. after seeing, yeah, let me see, yes, exactly. I, I can't swim, so I couldn't escape and swim to Greece. <laughs> and, yeah, no, there's all these th- reasons. No, it really, really left an impression uh-huh. on me. Like, that was like... So that was her intention, was to scare no. you? Her intention was to see a movie, and she couldn't leave the kids at home. So she, so she, she just didn't know what she was She didn't really know. What, no. I, 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 would, I would sort of submit that she didn't really know. But meanwhile, I fell in love with the music in the film, oh, Giorgio yeah. Moroder. Sure. And that, I mean, I have to say, that's like a watershed moment in my life. I fell in love with synthesizers and electronic music and, huh. and score. And, you know, and that's kind of what, that's really what I do now. And, and I'm knew I should never be around drugs. I'm also insane. I should meet, you know, listen, I'm drinking a coffee right now. Listen to me. Can you imagine me on blow? It would be the most insane. So you never even tried? No, never, never had an interest in it. Always oh. turned me off. Honestly, from being around my dad's group of like miscreant, you know, knucklehead friends, I really also knew like, this isn't for me. You know, I got with the Neville brothers in 1981. You know what I mean? You know, like, be do you around. Know your, do you know about your dad pulling my head out of the uh, the bowl of? Uh, like, you know that you tell, tell, It's in your. It's in your book. You, you know, I, I know it because know it. I lived it. I heard it that weekend. But uh, you know, I I know. I mean, I know that you were in a special place. Yeah. In a special time. God, I just forget. I just remembered that story. Your it was my parents' birth. My, one of my parents' birthday, I think. It wasn't like Thanksgiving or no, a Jewish it a birthday, holiday. Or... It was a birthday of one of them. Mm. And I didn't go visit them very often, but Joel always made me, when he was around, like, the... honor your mother and father. You know, really? If you, yeah, if, you're, if you were... So I just mentioned to him that it was my mother's birthday and she invited us over, or invited me over. We're to, going. And she loved Joel. Yeah. And, and, and I wouldn't have gone normally, but Joel was there. So right. I said, okay, we'll go. <laughs> But I was so. Is um, this like in California? Is this yeah, like here. in the valley yeah, or here in, the, in the valley? Yeah. And I was whacked. Yes. Yeah. Was, was doing um, the heroin at the time. <laughs> I was just really whacked. We went over to my parents' house and I nodded out and then I, I, I fell asleep in your soup. soup. Fell asleep in your soup. Joel pulled me up on my hair. Wow. Do you <laughs> even remember it? No. I mean, do you? He just. No, I mean, I remember what he told me afterwards. Sure. I can only imagine schmuck <laughs> and then he took up he, I remember him telling my mother that I was I'd really worked hard and I was really tired right that's why yeah and no, he was that kind of cat he was not gonna no you know. uh-uh he made it but she knew exactly what was happening but of course yeah. he made up this he made he, I mean he really rescued the yeah. situation were you with other people what did you bring it like were you were he you with other friends it was just the two of you just happened to go to her birthday I don't, I don't know why but he was like somebody my parents really loved Joel my mother especially really loved because he had this way of like flattering her you know the way he did he was, you know what I, honestly I could say like he's really respectful of and like the older the generation thing. and the traditional things like he's he's a little like misunderstood a, in certain ways I think because I think you guys like I'll talk to his friends and they'll be like oh he was loud he's crazy not you when know, it like, came to that kind of stuff he was really respectful and knew way more about things from that generation he always used to talk about his grand grandfathers to me and his grandmother uh-huh. we called her bubba uh-huh. 
And these were people that were really... Like, I remember my great-grandmother. She literally talked like... You know, she barely spoke English. Great-grandmother? Great-grandmother. Bubba. Bubba. We called her Bubba. She lived in, you know, in Philly, right near the, you know, the city hall. And we'd go visit her. And I just remember thinking that she was two and a half million years old. Like, you know, you're so young and you see someone and she... So she couldn't have been around very long in your life. She wasn't... No, I think maybe when I was about eight or nine, she may have passed. But I just remember, you know, she would say, and then I remember there was a car in the village. You know, like she literally said stuff like, well, my father had a horse. You know, like, you know, I didn't believe... She saw, like, they... (laughs) Charlie throws this great line, you know, in the shtetl, how's the mud today? Is the mud good? How's your mud? You know, like, she went from mud to, like, the moon. So she really caught a real run. Like, I think of kids now, what are they catching? They, they, she in Philly? She was, she was living in Philly. They, they came through, they came, yeah, they Ellis came from, they, I think they came through Ellis Island and they came to Philly, yeah, because I think everyone came through Ellis Island yeah. at a certain point. Yeah. I don't think Philly was a port that would receive. No, no, no. They had to go um, to Ellis Island. Yeah, I think that was the thing. So they were like early 1900s and my grand, my my uncle and my grandmother, his mother, they were they were born here in the first generation. And, you know. That's the same exactly with mine. My yeah. grandparents were from the old country. They, they escaped the mud. Yeah, yeah, they come through. The now, did they? where did they stay? <laughs> did they come out west or did they stay they in New York? They went to Cleveland. Cleveland? Really? Yeah, my dad was born in Cleveland. Okay. You never lived in Cleveland? No. No, I was born here. Oh, okay. I'm the first Jew in L.A. <laughs> That's right. That's what that badge is on your... Yeah, yeah. the first Jew born in L.A. Oh, wow. But, it, you know, it's funny. I was thinking I was driving over here, and I was like... I moved here two and a half years ago. The version of L.A. that exists now and the version that you grew up in... Totally different. It's like a different planet. Totally it's not different. even remotely the same. No. There wasn't a you lot know. of Jews here when I was born. No. I mean, I say that jokingly that I'm the no. first Jew born in L.A., but there wasn't a lot. No. The Jews that came here, I was actually thinking about doing a book on this album, and in fact, it still yeah. might. The all Jews right. that came here in, in my parents' generation yeah. um, all came here for unusual reasons, because the, right. the Jews that came in your grand, great-grandparents' generation that landed here from the old country right. all settled in the East Coast, in the big East Coast cities, Philadelphia, yeah. New York. Uh, in Boston, Boston DC, some extent, yeah. Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, there's Jewish settlements everywhere. No. But nobody came to LA. The ones that did come west came for bizarre reasons. Right. My grandfather was diagnosed with uh, asthma. Right. And was told he needed to get to warm weather. He right. was a peddler. Yeah. It no, took so him 11 my... years to cross the country. My mother was born in Cheyenne, Wyoming. She's the only, only Jew, Jew ever, ever, ever to visit, yeah. to, let yeah. alone being born there. Yeah. It took him 11 years to cross the country. He would settle somewhere, buy and sell shit, get enough money to move on. He got here, the year he got here, he died from asthma. It took him 11 years to get here. The irony was he died. That's the most Jewish story ever. (laughs) That's the, wow. So, but the Jews that came here all came here for, they were either dreamers with, like, they, because the settlements were all in in New York. It was all set up for the Jews had, you know, there there were, there were a lot of them. So the ones that left and then came west came for bizarre reasons. Yeah. So can imagine. Yeah, because this was set up out here much differently. There were the entertainment like business was the that's a lot of them came for the entertainment. That opened business. it up. But before that, before that, yeah. you had guys like Huntington and 
you know, you had these sort of like almost like you know Andrew Carnegie yeah, kind of like I own all of right. the water you, in California. You could take it over. That's right. You could take over yeah. anything. So yeah, the, the, but the Jews hadn't found any place here yet. No, and the entertainment business was the was the big attraction for the Jews that came here early. Yeah. And I think the schmata business also for some Sure. Yeah, I guess that goes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, wow. Yeah, you just come across. Well, I don't know how that gets us to car wash, but I want to talk to you about prior, if, if I can get sure. any kind of... So, car know. wash happened. Um, my PR business was going in the tank because of mismanagement. I had a big PR business, and we were really the, we were the kings of it, of of uh, music PR at that time. We were representing so, everybody. So did you, all right, let me just backtrack a little. So did you get into the music PR thing through the, the uni, like you were no, at, no, no, I not, got not with Reagan or whatever his name is? No, no. Nothing I got Universal. through it just by hanging out in the, by the Sunset Strip. Uh, all right. I, I, I would go to clubs and stuff and I really loved the music. I would just go wherever I could hear, go to jazz clubs. Now that was how your father and I first connected was just through our love of jazz. Oh really? Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to him about jazz in those days. What well, did you meet him? Like, was he on the road and you met him no, out no, here? No, 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 I didn't you meet him. I, I, or you see his name on records, or did you? Now that I don't. I think it's, it was Michael. Really? It's really Michael. Through, all right. So but Michael. I mean, I remember, just thing so, that we connected musically was that we both knew a lot about obscure, but about jazz. That, yeah. That, you know, white kids didn't want to. I tell you, the what the certainly not West Coast white here's kids. the connection he always referred to. And I, oh, yeah, what's that? The one conversation we had that connected us musically for the rest of our lives was I said to him, we were talking about things we loved as kids, oh. and I said, Ray Charles. That's all it took. I know where you're going. You can say it. It all went downhill from there. Yeah. And we always said that about uh, music. It was, was it, uh, it was, it's all downhill after 57 or 58. One, it was a year. I always remember hearing the quote saying it's, it was all, all downhill, downhill after 58. Well, the first, nighttime was the right time. Was the Oh. So that so would whatever be, year that yeah. was, and it was all downhill from there. No, what I say was <laughs> what the I song. say was the yeah. It was the song. Yeah. No, I mean, time was the right time was the first thing we heard. We both heard that together. Right. Well, not together, but we both. No, it was the first thing we both heard. Yeah. And then what I say was the thing that just said, "That's it." And I can't. And then, I remember where I was when I heard it the first time, and that was twenty years later. You know what I mean, or went, whatever. Or like we always laughed. You know, that was it. It was all downhill from there. It never got any better. Wow. That was as good as it ever got. That's interesting. So it connected us soulfully in, in, in music. Yeah, and to think like, you know, he goes on to produce Fathead. He goes on to produce that Hank. Thing. Like his whole thing was like he loved that band so much that he made sure that when he worked at Atlantic, that he, he signed them those. all back because they had all been dropped. That's from right. the lady, he right. said, "What? What happened? You know, are you kidding me? You know, so that yeah, he, the Ray Charles things stayed with him for that was it, you know, for for you know, still, you know, it's he it, was the first guy that I knew that that thought Ray Charles was the absolute shit, and it was the there was yeah. no, nothing better, nothing. And when I we, we just became so that was it, we yeah. connected on that level. Oh wow, what do you like, Ray Charles? Anyway, well, done." So what? Uh, uh, moving right along. I'm your guy. That's hysterical. So I didn't realize so, you were doing PR because you you went. You it seems like you snaked in. A, you went. Yeah, you were doing PR. I knew you was a PR guy ten years ago. I mean, like you were really doing PR. Not ten years ago. Maybe fifteen, twenty. You were 20. still really doing PR though. Well, I did PR up until the seventies. Then then a music PR. Oh, right. I stopped doing music PR after right. that. 
but that did. So I started this little PR company in the late 60s, and uh, I just got really fucking lucky. I didn't uh, have a clue what I was doing. I just loved the music, and this gave me a way to hang out in music. Right. So I invented a career for myself. Um, That's a time when you could. I actually know something. You can't do that now. Here's, here's what, you like this, because this is connects to Ray Charles. I was living in an apartment building in West Hollywood with nothing to do except I was hanging out, selling a little dope to pay my bills and stuff, but no, not working, right. not doing anything, just hanging out. Just a nice Jewish boy right. selling some dope. So there was a girl across the hall from me, this very foxy girl who I never could get. Foxy? That's, a fair, that's an Yes. <laughs> so I could never get close to I mean, I never... I hit on her 50 times and she never went for it. Right. But one day in my, she came over to my apartment and she said, I just met this guy on the street named Kenny. Oh. No, you're not, you have no idea where I'm going with this. Oh. Kenny, what was his name? Fuck, I can't think of his name. He was a drummer and he was married to Nancy Wilson, the jazz singer. Oh, okay. Kenny Dennis. Yeah, okay. Kenny Dennis. Yeah. Jazz drummer. Right. She said he hit on me, and he and he then tells me that he's married, hmm. and he invites me to dinner at his house. That he's married to Nancy Wilson. She said, "I'm afraid to go alone. Will you come with me?" So to me, it was dinner. Yeah. I was getting a dinner and a chance to meet Nancy Wilson. So I go to this house. We spend the there's just the four of us. We had this nice di- talking about music and stuff. It was really I was really taken by this. In the course of the conversation, Nancy Wilson asked me what I do. I say, I'm between jobs or something. I don't have a job. I need to get work. Mm-hmm. She said, well, uh, well she said, I, I have this publicist. Maybe he could hire me. Mm-hmm. So she calls this guy, Gene Schwamm, who had this big Hollywood PR firm. He shuts up a meeting for me to go meet this guy. I go meet him. He hires me. He wants to start a music division. He's got Nancy's his own, no, Nancy and Ray Charles are his two <laughs> clients. And he knows nothing about music. Wow. And he says to me, could you figure out how to work with these people? I said, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, done. So I was the music division of Gene Schwamm's company, representing Nancy Wilson and Ray Charles. And uh, like within 20, within 20 minutes, <laughs> I was on the road with Ray Charles. I went out on the road, and that's how I met wow. my first wife. Okay. She was the dancer, the lead dancer in Ray Charles' show. Oh, wow. So, uh, so. And then I started this little, I left Gene, started my own PR thing, and just represented musicians. Right. And I just got really lucky. Every, every yeah. band that I touched or that came my way was, became just huge. And then I started, then I got the Rolling Stones, and then it became... Oh, right, yeah. So, so when I had the Stones, then just anybody that you know, was in rock and roll business... Yeah, it just music. it all says, well, I want to work with that so guy. So there's, there's a thing called the Peter Principle, which I am the pr- proud proponent of the that you succeed to your level of incompetence. That was me. <laughs> so, yeah. so I built this, this, what started as a little company became this huge, gigantic company that I had no idea what I was doing. Or did it just get away from you, it like on a business end? Because I'd I'd stay on the road with the bands that I represented. Oh. I did tours one after another, right. and I had this company with like 15 employees. We had an office in New York and L.A. Oh. We had an office in London for a while. Right. but. I had no idea how to manage a business like that. Right. So it just totally got. They were everybody was stealing. It was sure. Yeah. It was. Uh, it just went totally down the drain eventually. Wow. So, 
uh, when I lost that company was 1975. Oh, the company yeah. went totally bankrupt, and I didn't have anything to do. So I. And so you went over to dinner at Nancy Wilson's again. No, car wash. That's, <laughs> a, that's yeah. how car wash happened. Wow. The, the one thing that I figured out, and it was the best, my best thinking, probably ever, was that I could apply what I knew about music because I did know a lot about music yeah. at that time, to to making a film. Mm-hmm. Car wash. The idea for car wash was that if you created a soundtrack for a movie, that w- the idea for car wash came in a, in one night, written on a napkin at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. Hmm. And the one element that I thought of, it was going to be a day in the life of car wash, but the one element that I brought to the table f- to get that thing done was Norman Whitfield. Yeah. The producer. Yeah. Norman Whitfield had never made an album that sold less than a million copies for Bowtown. Hmm. It didn't take a genius to figure out that if, no. you, the, if he made a, a, a soundtrack album on a movie that didn't cost a lot of money, the soundtrack would pay for the movie. Right. And when I went to Universal, I just that's all I said. I don't have anybody else. I got Norman Whitfield. Right. Um, he'll do the soundtrack. His worst album, which would sell a million, will pay for a fucking movie. Oh, easily. You have no downside. There's yeah. no, and they Universal just totally bought it. And that's, that's what happened. And that's a really interesting period in the in the movie business because it, they had gone through some of the major studios were actually in a lot of trouble. Like in there was that weird period in late sixties, early seventies. They were like, they were making a lot of movies that were like not really successful, and there, there was some calamity. Universal had a movie they were developing with mine at the time. That was probably the truth. What you're saying about that I Universal just was hungry for for a success. They needed, but they had yes. they had Jaws. They were developing Jaws Coming, at the same yeah. time they were doing mine. Right. So Jaws actually, you know, went off the boards. Well, that's the advent of the summer blockbuster kind of like that cycle right. of you know franchises. Well, that's not a franchise. There's, I mean, actually, it is. They made like four Jaws movies that just most of them sucked. Yeah. But but, the, but yeah, then then Jaws became Star Wars, which became Indiana Jones, which became blockbuster. But there was a period where. You know, the, I think, and it's kind of like they're going through it now again in a, in a weird way. Movies either cost $200 million or 50 bucks. Yeah. There's, sure. you, it's hard well, to... Well, the digital age, you can make a movie for 50 bucks now. Well, yeah. And these yeah. weird horror films that or, cost 15 grand that do $200 million worth of box office. Yeah. But it is an interesting sort of in-between period, and I think that was an in-between period. So you can have an idea where here's a soundtrack supporting a, like the whole film there was only like one the, other movie that had a soundtrack that did that did kind of what we were talking well, about was Nashville oh of course yeah Nashville That's was kind great. of and it also yeah. Nashville was the the actually genesis for car wash the idea of Nashville was what I used because it was really? a day in the life of also sure it made the place the yeah, just like we made car wash. Nashville was the place that right. the movie was centered. Interesting. So never made that connection. That's well, that was they're the, not very similar movies. No, other other than those devices. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, car wash got gets green lighted. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what we were doing. I mean, there was right. uh, we were just totally novices at making movies. But I had been at Universal previously, so I had right. a little bit of experience. I knew the, the, who the players were. Sure. They had this young guy that they had just brought in to run the studio named Tom Mount, who yes. was what was called at the time the baby mogul. Right. 
he was in his 20s and he was yeah. running the studio Very and he powerful. loved this idea yeah. the music and all that yeah so the Richard Pryor story was also interesting the, the Richard Pryor played a character called Daddy Rich mm -hmm. in the movie this reverend the character was based on Reverend Ike and Reverend Ike one of my all-time uh, favorite yeah I mean talk, talk about like every Sunday night the best in my way. childhood was was like well I'll stay to, up till midnight because I get to yeah that. Reverend Ike was the best, best. way to be the wait, wait, lose your money where the best way to be the help the poor is not be one of them yeah exactly <laughs> Unbelievable. And you gotta get out of the ghetto and into the get mo. Yeah. <laughs> Reverend Ike was spectacular. So we yeah. wrote this thing for for Reverend Ike and I got Reverend Ike to come to the studio yeah. and he shows up with an entourage of about eight Rolls Royces for the for the meeting to, to Wow. To, I'll show them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. So we 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 uh we're in the process of signing him to play the, that part, Daddy Rich. Hmm when I get a call from him in like late at night said he talked to God and God told him not to do it <laughs> and what what I'm sure really happened was that he got nervous that we were gonna yeah you know make him look silly right which we intended to do but sure. he didn't want to be portrayed that way so right. he pulled out and this was like at the 11th hour this right. was like two days before we were gonna shoot we were, I mean, we were thinking about suing him because he had committed to doing yeah, this and, yeah. and he was really fucking us up and that just had the idea prior. So I forgot how we got to Yeah, Paul, how do you get to, I mean, he seems almost like why wouldn't you just go to him yeah, in the first place, but because he was really... Well, Re Reverend Ike was the real guy. Well, so, obviously, yeah. And if we could have had him the way we wanted to and really just played with him, it would have been, it would have been very funny. But yeah. so then we didn't, couldn't get that, we got prior. And Pryor went for it immediately. He loved yeah. the idea. So that was the the fun part for me. After we got Pryor, mm -hmm. we we had gotten Pryor for one day. Yeah, that was, that's that's what I yeah. I read that it was yeah. one day's work. Supposedly that was all it was going to take, but it dragged out. We were all getting loaded, and it yeah. just dragged. The day got long, and it got dragged out, and we didn't finish in the one day. Right. So now we are are fucked because. He can yeah. hold us up. He can stick sure. a gun to our head. We don't have him contractually for more than one day, and we don't have the, the stuff done. Yeah. So the, the, uh, I took Richard into our trailer, my trailer, and just a pile of coke uh, sitting on the thing. He said, Richard, we got to talk about Will you help us do this? He looked at that thing, and he said, are you kidding me? I'm in. <laughs> I mean, to, words to that effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just got wasted, and he came back the next day. did it for uh. nothing. Really? Yeah, it didn't charge us anything. Wow. He just liked what he was doing so much, and it didn't matter to him. He didn't give a shit. I mean, it wasn't going to be for that much money, but he could have. He could have fucked with us. Sure. So. And I'd imagine on the back end of whatever. I mean, that's weird. Those there was are, no back end. That's Nobody what I. I yeah, end. I was going to say that didn't exist. No. Didn't I mean, exist. I was making the assumption that maybe that stuff had kicked in by no. then, but no. But the, the beauty, I mean, one of the things I loved about Richard is he just did what he wanted to do, and this is yeah. what he wanted to do. He really liked it. He liked doing it with the Pointer Sisters. Sure. It was a lot of fun. We had just a lot of fun. Yeah. We got very high that day. We all got very high. It was just, it was great. Oh, my. So we got ended up getting Richard and to finish it, and uh, it turned out really well, obviously. Yeah. No, I was So this, massive. just to give you an idea, a frame of reference, that movie cost $2.2 .2 million to make. Right. It grossed, oh fuck, when I, what was the number? It, 
grossed like six million or something like that. That like, doesn't sound like a lot, but at no. the time it was among, it, it was in the top one hundred grossing films of all time. Right. It made the list of the top one hundred of all time. Yeah. Grossing only no, not six. Million. No, it had to be more than six. It was more than six million, but I don't remember like the number. Twenty six million or. I mean, I'm sure an amazingly low number to be in oh, the top really? to oh, be okay. in the top 100 of all time. Well, and that's the thing. I think up until that point, you know, if you think about what well, what did a movie ticket cost? You know, it's like that's exactly you know, right. it's like you know, they Didn't would always talk that. about like that's exactly right. You know, Gone with the Wind. It costs a nickel to that's see exactly it. Exactly right. Yeah, that's so, why the number was so low. Right, and that there were no other movies that grossed. Yeah, and it's significant nowadays. You do that in a weekend, and it's it's it's, it's a, a disaster. Yeah, if you do what we did, total gross. Yeah. it's a disaster. But if you adjust for inflation, well, it, that's it, a different. Yeah, there's a different make number. Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. I wouldn't. Yeah, I would. I, you know, it's funny. I I never even thought about what my perceived sort of notion of what box office numbers would be for a mid 70s film I just assumed like you did 25 million the first week and like no, no you didn't uh -uh. no uh -uh. way in life and there's no video there's no there's no, none there's of no, the, there was no, that's it that didn't exist none of it existed and if that's not a movie that's going to make it to network TV without a lot of editing and censoring so I you it know, did eventually it did, it did but I, I you know you know but it was the soundtrack that kind of yeah movie. the soundtrack it grossed more than the movie it's huge yeah, the soundtrack, we had two number one singles, yeah. and, and the album was number one Yeah, for a significant length of time. So that wow. was really what... It's um, incredible. Um, yeah, a great experience. And this yeah. was like, I remember thinking to myself, I'll never do anything else in my life that makes me happier than this. <laughs> this was the, the most fun I ever had in my life. Yeah. And, the proudest I was of something that came out of my head that yeah. actually ended up on the screen. Absolutely. There was a, are it, you it, listed as one of the writers, or are you listed? No, no they they didn't no, do that. They then. didn't do that. Then. Yeah, because at that point you, there was no such thing. That, nowadays it would be story by, but right? They, uh, they didn't give story by credits. No, so it was my story, but they hired Joel Schumacher. Yeah, who did the screenplay. He's had a pretty big career. Yeah, had a pretty, pretty big career. <laughs> I actually didn't know that Joel Schumacher did. Well, he was a Joel was great. I can't imagine. Joel was That's a great. gay. Is a gay. Uh, he he uh, he was. What was the? He designed um, windows in department stores right. in New York. That's where he started. As a, he dressed mannequins. Yeah, yeah, In New yeah. York, he was kind of a fashion designer. Right. Gay heroin addict. And of course, <laughs> this is the yeah. right guy. Yeah. And he had just done a movie called Sparkle. He had written a movie called Sparkle, which Don't was know. a it was a uh, fictional um, uh, take on the on the. The um, well, Supremes. It was oh, wait. the story of the Supremes. Did did Mar didn't Mariah Carey do a movie called Sparkle that was like her rise through being know. a diva, like Sparkle? through? Yeah, it was called Sparkle. It's the same thing. I wonder if it was just a sort of reprisal of the same story. This was about three black girls, young black girls in Detroit, who you know become the Supremes. I, I know that uh, her version was uh, the, the Academy did not uh, look kindly <laughs> on it. Anyway, I saw uh, this movie and Joe. Yeah, it was just great. Yeah, perfect guy for it. Perfect guy. Yeah. So, yeah, you did a great job with that. Wow. So I can only imagine what your life must have been like with a smash hit film and soundtrack. Well, that's and, the... I mean, that must have opened up to some crazy behavior. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. The, what yeah. happens, and you know this, that, that yeah. you get, when you have a hit of any kind, you get the, they give you the keys to the city. Sure. And 
the, the Peter principle that I was describing before, yeah. you know, the succeeding to your level of incompetence. incompetence yeah. <laughs> I took it to the next step. Yeah. Which is that they literally, I got a deal uh, at Lorimar. Uh, Lorimar. Lorimar, to, to yeah. I should say Pittsburgh, but yeah. they, they didn't even know. They just made me a deal without even knowing what I wanted to do. They thought. Yeah. They're just like, hey, you did this. What, well, you know, to do guys, this. So yeah. I was a good guy to bet on. So we came up with, again, a night of just snorting coke all night. Yeah. We wrote The Fish That Say Pittsburgh. That I did get story credit for. Right. And that was done in one night. And it was yeah. just taking the same formula. Sure. The, uh, Tom Bell did the music for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Philly, very Philly. Philly. I mean, it was, it was all, all the. Yeah. Dr. J and Tom Bell and, and, and you know. And the music with the Silvers or yeah. the Philly based. Sure. Phyllis Hyman. They're all Philly International. All, they're all, all they're Philly all international part of that artists. sort of yeah. uh, Gamble and Huff uh, and that right. whole. So I all mean, of the artists on that soundtrack were. Philly international artists. Right. Uh, so almost like a story about a team, like a ABA-ish kind of basketball team. It was the first team the in the NBA game. that uh, that was put together entirely built astrologically. <laughs> you you are the Pisces. blackest Jewish man ever to come <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah, thanks to Next my dad. dad. That was the other thing we used to joke about. Astrology. <laughs> and, and being black Jews. Oh, black Jews. Well, oh, that was the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think Joel Tallman. I grew up, that was one of my kind of secrets that I felt after a while, after a few successes I could talk about. But I grew yeah. up wanting to be black. Right. I, I was always regretting that I wasn't black. There is a weird thing within the Jewish, Jewish community but that, that, where there's this American assimilation through black culture. We identified so strong. I yeah. identified much more with blacks than I do with whites. I mean, I think... Today, I, I still do. Yeah, it's funny. Even in my household, I'll refer to stuff as being like, oh, that's so white. Like, whatever. It's like this, you well, know, goyish. Yeah, goyish. Yeah, goyish and white is meaning the same sort thing. of Gentile. Uh, or if you're in the, interestingly enough, Mormons called non-Mormons Gentiles. Did you know that? No, like, I did. Freak me out. Under the Banner <laughs> of Heaven, John Krakauer. Great book. Um... Yeah, this whole notion of like, I remember being a kid and, you know, so you want to be like your old man, so you, that whole filter comes down and I was just like, I remember being, no, I remember knowing where I was when I heard Pat Boone's version of Tutti Frutti and Little Richard's version of Tutti Frutti and I was like, I'm on that team, I'm on that team, you know what I mean, that's it. And it wasn't even like, you know, my old man, I think he always kind of was like, wow, like, I didn't tell you that, you just kind of got to that. I always, yeah. always like, screw well, that. Well, it's, it's, you don't have to teach that. It's something no. that we have. Yeah. I still, to this day, if it doesn't have a backbeat, man, no, you I don't get it. it. Yeah. Well, and then, yeah. You rock and roll with it that yeah. doesn't have a backbeat. Well, that's the, well, I refer to that as when, when the roll left rock, you lose me. Huh. I, to me, like, and it's like, I'm like, I always, I just, I don't know. And, you know, it's funny. And my older brother, David, his incredible knowledge of music and really, really gravitated towards rock when we were kids and I just remember being inundated with like you know I actually really like The Who but Zeppelin I just it didn't move me, me the either. same way me and either. and the thing is the irony is stealing everything from old blues records sure. l- lyrics <laughs> guitar riffs everything and I'm still like I'd much rather listen to Howlin' Hall- Wolf or Muddy Waters or you know like that thing still to this day absolutely like you got me so but it's weird you know I have so many black friends and you know I don't it's it's funny there's this there's this dividing point with my friends where there are my black friends that are like yeah come on man you're a black Jew and then there are my other friends that are like that's not funny 
you know, like, don't, th- you know, like, I, I, you know, I like you, you're not one of them, whatever, but it's like, you know, you ain't, you ain't black, you know, and I'm like, I know I'm not, but come on, man, rerun was cool from what's happening, you know, there's this whole, like, I'd much rather, I identify more with Miles Davis than, uh, go right down the list, you know, anybody else named Davis, yeah, but yeah, I, I was trying to think of a, you know, a famous white person named Davis, but yeah, so we, you know, that's an interesting thing, though, about the Jewish American experience there is this generation well, it's of also guys. the underdog thing too that it definitely has, that it has a strong yeah, too. Definitely, they were the underdogs, and we were the underdogs, and we just you root Absolutely. for them. I always rooted for them in that in that role. We yeah, except we came here because our grandparents wanted to come here. No one. Yeah. They, no, you know you what I mean? Didn't? No, you, what are you saying? Like, no, and that's the, that's the thing. I, I've had these like, conversations with people. When the issues of race in this country are just, it's still handled so poorly. You know the Joe Samples story, I love Joe. Any, tell me anything about Joe. Joe yeah, Sample is... was the first African-Americans in this country. Did you know that? His family? Really? When they, I got, didn't, off, I, wow. when they got off the boat, they said, here are the samples? <laughs> <laughs> that's his that's great wow boy did I just fall for that Joe's the I love Joe um wow heard that before. no I've never heard that's I can't believe Stuart didn't tell you that no <laughs> Stuart didn't Joe certainly I mean, I've spent enough time around Joe we yeah and I know. wow here the samples wow I went, I went to college with his son Nick oh I, yeah he's a great cat great bass player yeah yeah uh, oh, wow that's really funny <laughs> Uh, you got me. I, I like being gotten by yeah, something sure. like that. Your dad used to get me all the time. Yeah, you, you have the same. You have the same quality. <laughs> well, you made somebody right into it. And then he, but if you got him, he would say, "I'm a lot of things, babe, <laughs> but one of them is not your straight man." <laughs> I was born at night, not <laughs> yeah, last not, night. Not last night. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, just this wild stuff. But um, okay, so you you make that. I know that movie wasn't. A su- like a, a no, success, it wasn't a success like at all. It, the, the record even didn't nothing. there wasn't a hit there no. was nothing I, I remember unfortunately that's like kind of that's when I kind of remember knowing who you are as my dad's friend and uh, you know knowing that but I know that from that like you you your your career has been fascinating because you 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 always all right that didn't work I'm a publicist again or that didn't work I manage people or that didn't work I'm an author that didn't work I, you know, Bounce it's, back. I have a lot of resilience. It's crazy amount. Like almost like literally, like people talk about Miles Davis reinventing music every. You reinvented your career every five years, like that I can think of. Maybe a little bit longer periods, but the yeah, movie I went thing, through a lot of things. It was, it's all or largely drug related. <laughs> well, you're very I, and I respect that you're very frank about that. It's like you things well, the, got the you. Fish that saved Pittsburgh was disaster yeah. because of my drug sure. addiction. Well, I was commander of the ship, and I was like totally out of control. Yeah, you know, I, I got kidnapped off of my own movie. You know that? Yeah, I re- well, I mean, I know the vague details about that, but this, that, they had enough of you. The, well, the studio was, had I, enough. We were making the movie in Pittsburgh, so we weren't under their direct control. Right. I was in charge of bringing this movie. So in. they're hearing reports so and seeing dailies and, and, and seeing dailies and seeing the costs. They're going way over budget. The movie went. To, Double budget, right? It was like two and a half million dollars, and we brought it in at five million, oh, which that's they weren't happy astronomical about. Astronomical at that point. You might yeah. as well be making Star Wars. And made they would for call less. and yell at me on the phone. And this was Lorimar, who were the Jewish mafia. These were the yeah. tough guys. A guy named Mo Dalitz. These were all Cleveland yeah. guys, actually. Cleveland Jewish oh. mafia. All right. Uh, um, guys, your dad. Merv Adelson. Oh, 
You know what that is? He ran Laura. No, but the Cleveland connection with your old oh, man dad, born in well, Cleveland. My, my yeah, dad, he would have known no, these guys. No, All right. My dad was a schmuck guy. Oh, okay. Dress salesman. But so they, I know they, Mo, you said Modellitz? Modellitz. Yeah, that's a yeah. real name. Yeah, and Erwin Molaski. These are tough guys, yeah. Vegas guys. Yeah. Uh, now, so they would call and threaten me. And I was so high and getting using so much drugs that yeah. that I would just not take anything seriously and fuck them. I'm you know I'm wow. I'm the guy who made Car Wash. I don't you know yeah. It's my movie and I'll do what the fuck I want. And right. they ended up sending two guys to Pittsburgh who politely took me off the set and drove, and took me to a place called something Island uh, in Florida. The hell was <laughs> yeah, I know what it was. Get off this movie Island. It was something yeah. like that. But they put me in a room, in a hotel room, locked the door, and uh, yeah. I had to... You're keep, lucky that's all they did. It's like lucky that's all you're they did. I'm very lucky. really lucky. Well, we were still in the middle of the production, so they, they needed me to eventually come back and finish the thing, but they took me off the movie for a couple of weeks. So that's why. Was, was making movies a way for them to like clean their money? Or were they at this no, they point, were they were legit? They, they, were they had, uh, what was that the television series, the, the Waltons? That was theirs. <laughs> They had, a, they, they had a few bucks in their pocket. <laughs> you, they went from doing crazy no. mom shit to the Waltons. That's about as white and guyish as it gets. Yeah. Good night, John that's, boy. That's Lorimar. Good night, Moisha. Yeah. <laughs> Good night, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they made, that's how they made the whole That thing. was gig- That show was Gigan- on for like Oh, these guys are multi-millionaires. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so they so, they no. said you're done. You enough of you on this movie, and it gets done. Well, no, not they just they made me dry out, and then um, and then they let me back. Okay. Um, so they actually babysat me for a couple of weeks with these two guys, and let me out of a hotel room. Wow. Well, I I, I was addicted to heroin at the time, yeah. so I had to uh, kick and and get some of my senses back. Right. But it was nuts. I my partner, a guy named David Dashev, do you know him? Don't know the name, no. David managed the persuasions. Whoa! I, well, I know some of them. I've sure definitely met some of them over the years. Yeah. So D- David was a music. Fi- you yeah. Loved David. He was a great, yeah. another black. I mean, a white yeah. Jew. Yeah. Um, a black Jew. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> he was at A and M Records, and, and right. uh, um, so uh, what was like, the point? Oh, so he and I were both using heroin, oh. and our director, a guy named Gilbert Moses, a black guy, yeah. Gilbert Moses, was addicted to coke. So he was like up in the, you know, up here, and we were down here. Yeah. And we, it was just nuts. The whole movie wow. was nuts. It was totally out of control. Was there a black director on, uh, on, uh, on Car Wash? Yeah, guy named Michael Schultz. Yeah. yeah. Michael Schultz did a bunch of prior films. Didn't he do like Bustin' yes. Loose? Yes. And the, he yeah, he's great. Films. Yeah. A really, he, a wonderful guy too. Seems like a wonderful guy. Yeah, I, I've never solid, met him. A solid. Citizen. Yeah. Very terrific guy. He's in he, the. He's in the. Dock. He did a movie called Coolie High. Yeah, which, was movie, which we loved. That was that's a. We really hired him on the basis of that. It was a terrific movie. It was his first movie. Um, Gwen, uh, what's his name? Glenn Turman was the, the actor in it. It was just terrific. Oh, yeah, a little movie. Yeah, it was shot in Chicago. Where, where that guy was actually at the Les McCann gig that I did. Glenn Turman. Yes, and then, and then I've actor. never known his name. He's the lead. He's the um and huh. and also one of the other actors in there. If you haven't from, seen that movie, go see. It's oh, Cooley I've High. seen Cooley. I remember seeing Cooley High on what was called and this will crack you up UHF uh, television <laughs> on like local you know local sort of you know affiliates of like you know little syndications you know sort of television stations. I saw Cooley High when I was a kid. 
Channel 17 in Philly. Great movie. Great movie. Yeah. Total classic. So it was just a little, a little independent movie. Yeah. That was the first thing he did, and we hired him on the basis of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, that's that oh, that's great. His career. He's a terrific guy too. Schultz. Yeah. Michael Schultz. Totally great. Yeah, he's in the. He's in the prior documentary, and he tells some of the better stories. Because it's funny, Tom Mount is in it, um, Michael Schultz yeah, is in Mount it. Mount was close to the prior. Yeah, I don't know if, if some of his friends think he was really that close. He tells some, some stories. Some of Pryor's that, friends? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to name names. He was an advocate for prior. He though. definitely, that comes through. But I think he tells some stories where they're, you know. And Tom I mean, tells stories. That's, that's he can tell name. some stories, yeah. And he tells them in the film. And listen, he's Tom Mount. I remember hearing about Tom Mount when I was a teenager. He was a powerful, powerful guy. you know. Although but, my old man told me that he was the guy that kicked um, Hitchcock. Hitchcock off the lot. So that kind of Joel never, never forgave him. And I got to tell you, I, I would was, always come to Mount's defense with Joel. Yeah. And he said, he's the guy that kicked Hitchcock. Yeah. Fuck him. Fuck yeah, him. yeah. And he I hated get, him for uh, that. And God bless my father for that sort of, you that know, he puts that his, good. you know, I, got, I totally understood that and respected it. And it's funny, I, I knew to not say anything when I was, I was in Tom's presence not too long ago. Oh yeah? And I knew, Where? at a screening for the doc, uh, uh, for the Richard oh, Pryor, Pryor doc, for the, for the Pryor doc, he came to the screening. And I decided not to even say hi to him. Like, I just was uh -huh. like, hey, you know, if, if by some stupid sort of by osmosis from the ether minute of energy I say did you kick you know uh, did you <laughs> I'm not the I'm not the guy that's you know I do remember this and, and this is sort of connected to that kind of thing my father told me once that Nesui Erdogan at Atlantic and you, 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 you might find this interesting because this might actually validate why he was so upset about the Hitchcock thing there was a period of time when my father was at Atlantic where Nesui would be like, you know, you, there's certain stuff you got to do for me. Right. And one of the things was that Duke Ellington wanted a deal at Atlantic. And Nesui instructed my father, not himself, but my father, to tell him that the label wasn't going to be signing him. Ah, and he said, yeah, I don't think he told this one a lot, but I'm going to tell it I because it really let me know, you know, a lot about, you know, who my father was as a guy. He said, I never felt the same again about Nesui? After well, no, he loved Nesui and he never said a bad word, but he said, I felt like such a full of shit wrong person for doing that. For doing that. He said, I told Duke Ellington that we couldn't sign him and I was the guy that was sent, you know, sort of like and he said, I I really wish that Nesui would have just man you know, manned up manned in up a way and said, You need to do this, you need to do this. You're his not his peer, but you're closer and, you know, sort of, you know, age and everything. And he just said he thought it was just in his sort of, you know, verbiage. He said it was just a turkey move. It was just a wrong move. <laughs> I dad would never lighten up off a Tom Mount thing. Never, no. no matter what I said about Mount, because no. Mount did a lot of good things, but yeah. Mount was a... a, a Joel's right about him. Mount was a... Well, he's a powerful guy. I mean, Matt, he's, he's a liar. He's just yeah. a... Well, I forgot who, it, who described him. He said he has a problem with the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I love any term like that's great. Yeah, he's just a little. Pro it's like a Broadway Danny Rose. Like I don't want to badmouth the guy, but he's a no good, low down <laughs> louse. You know, it's like yeah, oh, okay. Um, so yeah. that was truth about Mount. Mount did some good things, but he, he sure. just couldn't tell the truth. Right. And he would always he would 
I mean, his big shortcoming as, a, as an executive was that he could never tell you no. So he'd tell right. you yes, even though he knew it, the answer was no. That and I don't he'd lead you yeah. on, and, and yeah. he, he led so many fucking people on. There's nobody in the record business that's ever done that no. to, to uh -huh. me. <laughs> yeah, no, you have a deal. No, you yes. don't. Yeah, no, that's a oh, thing. We love this. Yeah, yeah, we, we want to make a deal. With yeah, you. we love no. this. That's happened, you know, Mount a billion it. times. Just, he never says no. And it's terrible. There's a there's a style of being an executive, and it's in any business where you you can't be the bad guy, so you make other people, people the bad the, guy. Yeah, and it's like you set your team up the right way, you'll always mm. look good. I guess you know what I mean. Like I, there are a number of producers, I've, record producers I've worked with, and executives where I, I've seen it mm. sort of transpire, and you're just like, and you know, there's this like sort of, you know. I, I guess in, 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 in therapy terms, it's called trait or state, which is like you, where you have a hyper judgment of someone else's, you know, what you should do it like me. Like that's a wrong move. You should, and then you get angry. I share that feeling with my father. Like, you know, you kick Hitchcock off the lot. Why don't you just punch Fellini in the face while you're at it? You know what I mean? Like it's a real, like, I don't think he's right. You know, he's like, totally right. He's totally right. But whatever, you know, what are you going to do? That happened. But, but, Moving right along, uh, you, without being uh, angry at uh, Tom Mount, who had a very great career, how but I always loved that your dad. He never yeah. would get off of that. We we would argue no, I a can little bit that. about. We would argue a little bit because I, I would defend Mount for certain things that he did, knowing that Mount was still full of shit about a lot of things. But he yeah. did do good things. You know what's funny? I didn't know that you had written a book until a friend of mine said. Uh, uh, my buddy, uh, this kid Chris Root uh, from Philly, is a great, uh, just like a quirky little songwriter guy. He lives in Brazil half the year. His old lady's Brazilian, and he nice. sends he sends us. Yeah, she's great. She's a great singer and really cool. They live like a really cool life, and he just sends me this note. He goes, "Your old man's one of my idols now," and I'm like, "I was like, oh, wow." He goes, "I read this book." And this guy, Gary Stromberg, talks uh, about your old man in the uh, book. And he said the stories, there, there, there aren't a ton, but the ones that are there, good cat. And I'm like, oh, nice. I didn't Gary wrote a book? <laughs> you know? like, so you had the book out. Oh, I read it. I bought it on iTunes. Oh. I just, I, I, I bought it. You want to do something fun? Read, read Max. Oh, uh, yeah. But read, I read it out I, loud. Yeah. Because you end up yeah. sounding like, like Max. And you, and you entertain yourself. Yeah. It's just uh, so much fun to read because I put it in the vernacular. Sure, unfortunately, like, turlet instead. Yeah, of turlet. Yeah, yeah. You do it. And well, when you say it out loud, <laughs> it just makes you laugh. Mac is yeah. Wow, um, it's it's yeah, but it's a great. It's hard for me to do anything with Mac without already doing that. By the way, <laughs> like he's the guy. That uh, what was his quote? Well, I you said I wasn't aware that I wasn't awake the last time we spoke. Uh, I mean, if you have any idea how many times I heard that for the first three months after it was uttered, I mean, it was pretty much a couple times a day. I wasn't aware that I wasn't, wasn't awake the, the last time we spoke. spoke. Yeah. I mean, the he first time I met Mac, I met Mac at a recording studio, uh, Right Track Studios on 48th Street. And, and I had never met him. I'd always heard stories about, I'd obviously heard that story, you know. Uh, what was the other? He, he also. Was it Mac that said, I ain't at any place? He said something on the, just crazy <laughs> Mac-isms. So I was at a session, and I think it was a, like a David Sanborn record. I was like, you know, helping out, set things up, and I just went down the hallway, and I saw that Mac, 
was I knew what he looked like and I obviously had spoken on the phone with him and whatever and I just I walk over and what I didn't know was at the time he was just on the little dark edges of cleaning up like he would, mm. may have been chipping mm. but he was mm. he was mostly clean mm. so he was you know a little shaky and I see him and I and I you know and I, I always feel like when I was a kid I came off like a Simpsons character the kid that's like hi Mr. Rabinaka you know I was always like this dorky you know goofy pitch <laughs> kid I wasn't I'm sure I was a little cooler but I see him and I say hey uh, you know I think you're friends with my, my father just want to say hi I'm, I'm Adam Doran I'm Joel's son and he proceeded to back me into a corner and tell me a five minute story five inches from my face about how he's still mad at my father for not using the right drummer on the Neville Brothers record <laughs> he wanted him to use I think it was Herman Ernest or, 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 or another guy maybe he used Herman but he was so pissed about this bizarre thing that was I was just saying hi and I was now in the middle of a thought that was eight years old. So I was like looking at him like <laughs> eyes like triple size. And I'm like, Dr. John is scolding me. This That's is my age, you know. Great. So I called. I would love to have heard that the way he did it. Oh, it was, oh, he was ultimately sweet about it. He, was, he, he always refers to me as Sprout. You know, I guess he calls everybody's kid <laughs> Sprout. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm getting a lecture about New Orleans session drummers from somewhat of a crazy person and I got to get back to my session to hopefully not get yelled at by those guys so I was like this is so I go back in and I tell you know I'm sure I told Samboard I was like man Mac just kind of gave he me an earful and he was just la you know he's a great guy Samboard he was probably laughing at me do you go out and lecture and speak yeah yeah how long have you been doing that and and when well, I know, started a whole new career is writing when I started writing books I've written three books and, I I was in the, I and I'm in the middle of the fourth when I got sick oh. um, I've written they're all on the same subject essentially oh, okay. one is uh, about famous people who are in recovery from eating disorders Oh. and then I wrote one about uh, uh, people who had big time careers who blew them because of addiction and regained um. their lives in sobriety Okay. Um, Wait, that's is that the heart of it? It's called Second Chance. That's Second Chance. Okay. Heart of They Fall is about entertainment, and, and that's the first one. Yeah, that's the right. first one. That's the one that did the best. But the Second Chance is a. Um, we're not promoting your books, by the no, way. We're not. We're I, not I, I I don't, don't go out and buy them. Don't. That is our rule. No, no, no. <laughs> heart of They Fall. I've read The Heart of They Fall, and that's an incredible book. I, you know. Yeah, that's the best of the books I've read. Then I was writing another one when when I got sick, so I stopped. I haven't been writing, but so. Because of that, I've been given the opportunity to go out and, and, and give uh, talks mm. at various functions. Right. So I can make a little bit of scratch yeah. on the side. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Any, no PR? No, you, you know, doing I, I was representing the Betty Ford Center up until oh. a couple months ago. That's perfect. Client. It was a great client for me. Yeah. Wow. They just merged with Hazelden. They're now becoming one entity. So they, they let me go. Wait, is that two major rehabilitation clinics? Yeah, yeah. Because Hazelton is right. Wow. Hazelton. Hazelton's also a publishing company. They're the biggest publisher of oh. of um, uh, substance abuse related oh. books. They're my publisher. Oh, my first two books. Gotcha. And uh, oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, the whole re recovery. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's well, the world that I live in now. The, I'm 30 years sober. Mm. And uh, I. 
I'm very active in the whole recovery movement. Yeah. I'm on the board of directors of something called Faces and Voices of Recovery, right. which is a Washington, D.C.-based uh, nonprofit that sends people out to speak on behalf of recovery. Oh. One, one of the, the, the biggest problem in the recovery movement is because of alcohol, it's anonymous, the word anonymous. Yeah makes people believe that we just hide, you know, we don't come forward and talk about recovery. Right. Because we're, but, so they're, what they're trying to do is put a face on recovery, let people who, who are known go out and talk about. Yeah. That, you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen now and I am, you know, yeah. I'm a former drug addict and I'm in recovery and I live with, you know, yeah. you don't have to hide your daughters when I come around. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course not. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, so then, that's what I'm, my life has been about for the last several years. Rela stuff related to recovery. Right. Talking, writing, um, and that's doing great. PR for, for um, Betty Ford and other, I've done PR for a couple other substance abuse places. I'm actually representing a new rehab in the Cayman Islands that's about to open, so I'm going to go spend some time is, down there. Is that where all the, like, you know, the, the Romneys hide all their money? or In the Cayman Islands, yeah. yeah no, it's true. such a joke. <laughs> no, I always remember hearing about that during the election. Yes. Um, well, okay, wait. So, along those lines, let me ask you one question to get your opinion on something. You know, what do you feel about these shows, like a reality show that that shows the process? Like, you know, like, I, I, I'm trying to think, was a doctor... Well, no, there's uh, just Dr. Drew. Drew, or, you know, I mean, since you're really on the inside of the yeah. stuff and you've written, I mean, I know he's an expert at something. I, I, I don't know which, what's your take on, you know, I find it to be really disturbing to watch, you know, uh, sort of someone who's had a career fall apart in the 70s as a child sitcom star go through, you know, rehab Andy for pills, or, or no, or a named 15 other people. You yeah. know, that's just a category of drug addict almost. Mm -hmm. It's kind of tragic, and I know I just I just asked you a question. I'm giving my answer. It's tragic to watch it, but what, what's your take on it as someone that actually lived through this? You know, depends. You know, it depends on who and the, what the specifics are. Mm -hmm. I'm all for the idea of promoting recovery, but I don't like the exploitation of the of celebrities. The way celebrities use it for their own purposes. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of ego involved in this right. stuff. True recovery is about just rebuilding your lives and becoming humble, and you know, showing some humility about what happened, and mm. and and there's a way of presenting it that that is genuine. And I think a lot of these shows are not genuine. Right. They're 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 artificially created. They're they're uh, they're. Dr. Drew's a great example of it. I mean, it's about creating an audience. It's, that's really yeah. what his primary interest is. Yeah. It's becoming a rock star. You know, he's becoming the the, the sure. The, um, and he's not in a real authority about this. I mean, there's a lot of people that have died. That, that yeah, were, that's that kind of why I ask. I've yeah. noticed that there's at least because two or three. He's not know. an authority. I mean, there aren't, really? he's not really an authority about this stuff. And he's, he's, he exploits a lot of people are exploited by him. So. I always thought it was weird. It's like, what is this show doing on like VH1? You know, it's like it that just show interventions seen, has been huge. That you've seen that? that I've seen it. You know what? I, I saw it one time. It disturbed me so yeah, much. I didn't. I don't like watching you know, it. whereas I'm addicted to the. I'd watch the Housewives of Ogden, Utah. I'll watch any of those shows. They're hysterical to me. How about Duck Dynasty? You watch that? No, and it's really funny right now. Yeah, and this will this will sort of time date this this episode. But there's all this uproar because one they they found out one of them is a little sexist <laughs> yes. and hates gays and blacks. Wow! Holy shit! Yeah, you don't like black people? That's insane. Yeah, it's horrible. But yeah, I don't. 
it's funny, I watch... It's astounding how big these things are, though, how many people do watch. Yeah. They, and they spike and up in arms for, now over... Uh, Duck Dynasty. How could they do this? Oh, you know, it's like, oh, like, oh, I always think of the Hindenburg. Oh, the humanity. You know, it's like, your dad isn't around for those. Duck Dynasty would definitely have been his favorite. Yeah, he, he liked the Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown show. That was his favorite. And it, luckily, he got to see every episode. Yeah, no, that stuff is horrible. But, well, shit, I think we, we touched all the good, bases, yeah, that's man. Good. I got to get going, too. Good, but that's. Uh, I'm staying. It's a, <laughs> yeah, just you know, where we're going here, I'm taking a shower. <laughs> All right, Gary Stromberg, thank you.